You're listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Nutmeg Arena podcast or the TNA podcast as we call it. This day is pretty special for the Nutmeg Assist because it's our third birthday. Three years ago, we started this journey and we've done pretty well. I, I hope and and this is probably a thank you for everyone who's kind of helped us helped us grow over the past three years and read our content and gave us feedbacks as well and to all the guests on our podcast as well and today is another special episode here and we have Mohammad Rashini returning who is a goalkeeper expert he's part of the GK union and he's also a journalist he's from Canada I guess you might have heard him before in the TNA podcast. That was probably the first podcast of 2020, the first TNA podcast of 2020. We had Mohammad join us that day and here we have him again and it's my pleasure to welcome you Mohammad to the show. Hey Rithwik, thanks so much uh, for bringing me on again. I'm I'm happy to see that you guys weren't disappointed by my first appearance. So <laughs> and you guys have extended a second invitation over. So uh thank you so much for uh for welcoming me back and uh, also for for that very kind um for that very kind intro. Goalkeeper expert, uh, I uh, man, I I don't even I just consider myself a goalkeeper enthusiast, but thank you so much and congrats to the entire Nutmeg Assist team on turning 3 years old. Uh, you guys have built a fantastic content creating platform and I think you guys are on the brink of of more success. So, uh, you know, there's a reason you've been around for 3 years. So, congrats and uh hope you guys experience more success in the near future. Yep, thank, thank you so much, much. Mohammad. Yeah. And, and as usual we have uh my co-host, our co-host Chris from Merseyside who's an Everton fan. And one of the funniest <laughs> thing about this podcast is it's hosted by a Liverpool fan and an Everton fan. So which is kind of, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, I was I was going to mention that I'm I'm you know for for you Rithwick because uh, Liverpool won the Premier League so congratulations to you but I I was just about to mention that I've actually uh worn my Alison Becker jersey just for this and uh now now I feel like I probably should have uh had yeah a there's a lot of bias shirt ready of, for yeah. Chris <laughs> <laughs> a, lot, a lot of bias here already I can sense it <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> But we used to it. I swear I'm not a Liverpool fan. I just love Alison Becker. He's a, he's a guy I followed for so long, and just to see him have this success with uh, with you know one of the best teams in in England and probably even the entire world, I I, I feel happy for him. But I swear I'm not a Liverpool fan. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, like you said, Alison has grown, but that is probably the first thing that we wanted to ask you in this podcast. This season has been probably I I would say probably a few goalkeepers have shined a lot a few goalkeepers have had horrible campaigns especially the record signing the record goalkeeper signing who for Chelsea Kepa Ari Zabalaga I mean he's been he's been really really disappointing for Chelsea in, in the past two years last season he was somewhat I I guess fine but if you look at the stats this season I guess he has one uh, probably he's the league's worst shot stopper so that is absolutely awful from a Chelsea fans perspective but the question probably is not about Kepa 
it is about the goalkeeping trends in general this season do you see a change in the style of keepers or, or, or the way the keepers have you know evolved this season the trend this season has pretty much been like previous seasons which is just more emphasis being put on goalkeepers to play the ball with their feet and uh, to play as a sweeper keeper uh, i think little by little we're seeing the death of the traditional save bot goalkeeper as i call them essentially you know goalkeepers whose only job is really just to, to save the ball and that's it they don't have to worry about the distribution or ball handling or sweeper keeping um, so we're seeing the death of of that traditional goalkeeper there are still some excellent goalkeepers out there who aren't great ball handlers you got Jan Oblak of Atletico Madrid, you got Peter Gulashi of RB Leipzig, Keylor Navas of PSG, etc. But more teams are moving towards a model that incorporates ball handling goalkeepers. Okay, so given there's so much emphasis then Mohammed on pl- on playing out from the back, do you think modern day goalkeepers are neglecting the basics of goalkeeping or do you think it's more of a coaching issue? I don't think modern day goalkeepers are neglecting the basics of, of goalkeeping. I mean, you you still look at, you know, some of the best goalkeepers in the world, like Alison Becker and Mark Andre Ter Stegen and Ederson and and Manuel Neuer. They're they're still, you know, they're good at sweeper keeping. They're good at distributing the ball, but they they're not just good because they can distribute the ball well or because they can sweep well. They're also good because they've got those basics nailed down. They're good positional goalkeepers. They've got good reflexes. They've got good vision. They've got good uh, awareness of where they are on the pitch. So um, I don't I don't think that uh, goalkeepers are neglecting the basics. I think that uh, the best goalkeepers are taking those basics and they're now adding uh, sweeper keeping and ball distribution to their uh, to their resume. Yep. And in in terms of the, I mean, if you look at uh, the Premier League or La Liga, you see uh, probably one or two goalkeepers probably every season impressing who's who's like not the household name like an Alison Becker or a Jan Oblak. Uh, if you look at La Liga this season, Unai Simon, I guess. Uh, I guess I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, in the Premier League, you have Nick Pope and Dean Henderson, who who done really, really well. Nick Pope especially. I mean, I, I just seen Liverpool's game against Burnley now. Nick Pope was fantastic in the first half. I guess he made three world-class saves as well. So, Tom Heaton was out with injury. Pope came in and he's kind of, you know, made that position his. I mean, a couple of seasons ago, he he, he had the same claim of probably starting for uh, England and he's made the same game this season too and he's the leader in terms of golden gloves so yeah sorry I I cut you off but I I was basically I was just going to say that like you you know you brought up Nick Pope and I I feel like he's he's the best English goalkeeper in the Premier League with respect to Dean Henderson with respect to Jordan Pickford and Tom Heaton and and some other names um, you know, he, he's part of an excellent Burnley defense. He's got 14 clean sheets to his name, which I believe uh, last time I checked that that was the league leader in the Premier League. Uh, he's a very good positional goalkeeper who's not erratic. Um, yeah, he, he's he's so composed and he's so stable and he's so patient and he brings all of those good qualities to the position. He doesn't rush out blind on every single 1v1. He makes he, he makes the, the correct decision most of the time. So, yeah, Nick Pope is a fantastic uh, 
goalkeeper and I, I wouldn't shy away from saying he's maybe one of the best goalkeepers in the in the Premier League this season. Do you think his progress though, Mohammed, is down to the fact that like you've said there, relating back the, the emphasis of Burnley is not playing out from the back at all. He's very much he's very much asked to do what his job describes. He's a goalkeeper. And you, you get the sense with Burnley, especially under Sean Dyche, obviously we, we know how they play. They do very much uh, keep a, a very, very tight unit in front of them. Uh, Defence well-drilled, well-organised. So therefore, Pope is just allowed to focus on being a goalkeeper. And that, I've, I, do you believe that has been a major part of his progression over the last couple of, say, 18 months to two years? The fact that he is only asked to be a goalkeeper and not sort of a sweeper keeper. I mean that that could that could uh, be a reason why. I mean one of the reasons, uh, w- one of the um, things that I don't like about the uh, the the progress of um, of the sweeper keeping and the uh, ball handling and and how it's being implemented is that uh, so many coaches are trying to coach them into goalkeepers, whether it's their style or not. Uh, you'll see yeah. some teams. Some coaches force their goalkeepers to play a ball-playing style when it's just not their way. But they just they try to force them to play that way because you know they they look at a, every other successful team and they're like, well, we should be doing that if we should be if we should be striving for success as well. And and they again they force the goalkeeper to play that style. And some goalkeepers just you know they're they're just not good ball handling goalkeepers. Someone like Jan Oblak, for example. Um, if you were to put him into Barcelona's team, I don't think he would do that well because, yes, he's he's good at the basics. He's excellent at the basics, but he's just not a good ball handling goalkeeper. And that I think that could be a reason why Nick Pope has been able to develop so well, because Burnley do not play that uh, play out from the back sort of style. And it has allowed him to develop yeah. at a good rate and, and develop properly. And, and I guess it's the same with uh, Edison as well. Because in terms of distribution, I, I don't think there's anyone better than Ederson because his passes are like 95% spot on, I would say, probably. I'm, I'm not, uh, probably, I did not do any research on the exact numbers, but it's just an uh, you know, approximation here. But his passes are probably mostly spot on and he probably starts the attack at times, which is amazing in terms, I mean, for Manchester City and he is an integral part of that team. Probably that is why uh, Guardiola probably went for uh, Claudio Bravo initially where he replaced Bravo uh, sorry, he, where he replaced Joe Hart with Claudio Bravo and when Bravo didn't work, he bought in Edison who's, who's a much, much better keeper in terms of distribution but he's mm-hmm. also been you know, the I mean, I mean We've been very much critical of him in terms of short stopping, I would say, to an extent, and also positioning. That 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 probably is our two areas where he needs pretty good improvement, especially his positioning. You look at a similar keeper, uh, Alison Becker, who is, I mean, you you can probably shout on an agenda, Alison bias or Alison agenda on me, but for me, Alison's positioning is probably his best trait. Not, 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 not his distribution, I would say, and that's why he makes a lot of saves look a lot easier than other mm-hmm. goalkeepers. Say for David de Gea, who, who kind of you know makes some extraordinary saves at times, but 
mostly that probably you know comes down to his early positioning as well and you and you are seeing him conceding lot lot of sloppy goals as well right now so do you think positioning is as important or is positioning probably one of the most important skill that a goalkeeper should have yeah I, if you, if you were to ask me to do like a power rankings of of skills um and and rank where each skill is you know positioning reflexes etc where they rank i would probably say positioning is number one for me because as you mentioned you you brought up an excellent point with allison becker where he makes a, a lot of what some people would describe easy saves but the reason why so many of those look as easy as they do is because allison becker has nailed the positional aspect of that save he's in the right positioning he's the correct amount of steps off of his line he's at a good angle relative to where the shooter is at um you know you you look at uh, one of the um one of the best examples of this was was the save he made against Napoli in the group stage uh, back during the 2018-19 season. Um, and I remember a lot of people were saying things like, you know, well, the the shot hit Allison Becker on the chest. It wasn't that great. But actually, it was Allison taking those steps, readjusting his positioning as he saw the uh, the ball change it where it was at, and and. Uh, land at the feet of the attacker and those steps and how he readjusted his positioning that allowed Allison to make that save and allowed Allison to basically be in the best position possible to make that save. So positioning is something that, that I'm, you know, I bang that drum a lot because it, it makes up for so much. You brought up David De Gea, for example. Yes, David De Gea is one of the best reflex goalkeepers in the world. In his prime, he was probably the best goalkeeper when it came to reflexes, when it came to quick reactions, when it came to these, I call them uh, YouTube highlight-worthy saves, you know, the, the kinds of saves where he's, he's diving across multiple yards and he's, he's reaching into the top corner of his goal and he's making all of these fantastic saves. They're all great, but you look at a lot of those highlights and there's something off with his positioning. Maybe he's a step or two too high off of his line. Maybe he's a step or two too far to the left or too far to the right. Um, another example is Kaylor Navas. Love Kaylor Navas. Um, he's one of my favorite goalkeepers from the 2010s. But if you were to ask me for the top 10 or maybe even top 20 goalkeepers in the world when it comes to positioning, Kaylor Navas is not making that list. He's a fantastic reflex goalkeeper he has fantastic agility his his footwork is out of this world he's always choosing the best steps whether it's the crossover step where you bring you know your left leg over your right leg or your right leg over your left leg as you're moving to the side or any other step but you know a, a lot of times his footwork and his agility is making up for his bad initial positioning and when his footwork and agility can't make up for it you get a goal like um, like the one that Napoli scored against him back when he was with Real Madrid, and I believe this was the 2016-17 season. I forgot who scored, but I'm pretty sure it was the first leg. And uh, the guy receives the ball, and he shoots it from about between like 30 and 40 yards out, I would say. And Navas is positioned way too far to his right. And even though he uses all the correct footwork techniques to get to that shot, he can't get to it because he's positioned too far to his right. So positioning is fantastic. It's again, it's you brought up the example of Claudio Bravo, and you know, it's one of the reasons why Bravo was unsuccessful with Manchester City, because even though there's so much focus 
on foot on um, distribution and uh, and ball handling and sweeper keeping and Bravo has got those down. Some of the other factors of his play, he doesn't have as that he doesn't have down. Uh, like his positioning, it's it's what let him down and it's what prompted Guardiola to look for a goalkeeper who's better in those aspects. But yeah, definitely positioning is is one of those things that um, that I always look for when I'm looking at a goalkeeper. And it's one of the reasons why I look at guys like uh, Allison and Jan Oblak and I say they're the best goalkeepers in the world. Yep, yeah, and especially and yeah, and especially coming to the David De Gea thing. Like uh, we we've seen probably the last decade being dominated mostly by Manuel Neuer and David De Gea. It's it's been probably between them on who the best goalkeeper was in the last decade. For a certain amount uh, number of years, it was Manuel Neuer who was doing all the job. Probably he had a good shout for uh, the Ballon d'Or in 2014 when Germany won the World Cup. As, as well, and I guess Bayern were in the Champions League semis. They won the Bundesliga title as well. So he had a good shout mm-hmm. that year. He, he was probably, I guess, really good in the World Cup too. But probably from 2016, David De Gea started, you know, uh, probably giving him a tough, tough uh, competition. And there the, the, the were probably, probably I would say probably a couple of years, David De Gea might have been the best goalkeeper in the world. It's It's been kind of a dominant era from these two keepers. I mean, obviously, yeah. you, you, have, you have some other keepers as well, like Thibaut Courtois, who kind of had some really good spells in between. Jan Oblak, definitely, he, he, he is there in the conversation. He's been in the conversation probably for the last four, five, five six years. Samir Handanovic, I I know that you mentioned Samir Handanovic in your in the last podcast we recorded, and pretty underrated keeper, but he's still in the mix as well. But in terms of being dominant, in terms of being you know recognized by the media, it was pretty much Neuer and De Gea. It was pretty much Neuer versus De Gea. So we are probably coming to an end of that era right now, and we have the likes of Alison Becker now. And Tiba Kota has kind of, you know, been, I guess for me, he's been the best goalkeeper this this season. He's been terrific this season. And then you have uh, Ederson, you have Marc-Andre Testegen, Jan Oblak uh, also. And there are some other keepers as well. Probably Ajax is Andre Onana. Probably might not be, you know, the best keeper around, but still uh, a pretty good shout and pretty good, uh, you know, coverage from the media as well so we have a lot of keepers being talked about these days so do you think like it's probably a new uh, a new era for goalkeepers where you know people are kind of giving more and more attention to keepers these days well i definitely think people are are giving more attention to goalkeepers Uh, i definitely think uh people are are watching goalkeepers more often um People are paying more money for goalkeepers, definitely. I mean, you know, the, two years ago, we saw the two most expensive goalkeepers in history. And we've also seen other goalkeepers who uh, clubs have paid a lot of money for. So I, I think um, people are paying more attention to goalkeepers. I'm, I also think there's a rise in, like, more thoughtful uh, goalkeeper analysis. You know, for a long time, we had these sort of couch potato takes. Uh, where people would, you know, they'd say stuff, they'd say generic stuff like, you know, um, 
oh, the goalkeeper should have had that, or the goalkeeper will be asking questions of himself, and and they won't go into more analysis. They won't they won't say you know well why is it why is it the case that the goalkeeper should have had that? Why is it the case that the goalkeeper will be asking questions of themselves? Why is this a bad goal? Why is this a good save? We'll hear stuff like you know what a save or incredible save, and then it's like oh that's it that's where it stops. No no other analysis. So we saw a lot of that before, and we also. We also saw, you know, these sort of takes where you'll get guys that have never played goalkeeper in their life or have never coached goalkeepers or have, uh, have never followed the position, but they're being paid so much money to, to make these, these sort of couch potato takes on TV and say, and say these sort of things where it's like they, they watch this sort of save and they're like, ah, the goalkeeper should have had this. Or they'll, they'll watch a save and, and they'll say something like along the lines of... Uh, you know, I I would have had that, or yeah, that's an easy save, or yeah, that's this, or yeah, that's that. Um, but while those couch potato takes still exist, and screen time is still being given to some people who have no experience or knowledge of goalkeeping, there are still uh, there is a rise in thoughtful goalkeeper analysis, and especially on Twitter, there's there's a whole bunch of guys who mainly cover goalkeepers and who analyze goalkeepers <clears throat> and who talk about goalkeepers. You know, uh, guys like Matt Pizdrowski of of the Athletic, who's a former pro goalkeeper, and he he his content alone is worth the subscription fee for the Athletic. Uh, you got Roberto Grosso, who's a goalkeeper coach. You've got Bill Reno, who does a heck of a great job covering American goalkeepers. Uh, John Harrison does really good next level statistical analysis of goalkeepers. Justin Bryant is fantastic too. Uh, David Priest is another good person. So there's a there's a rise in goalkeeper experts and enthusiasts and more attention being given to thoughtful uh, goalkeeper analysis and being taken away from these sort of couch potato takes of the past. Just touching on uh, Manuel Neuer there for a minute and just bringing it back to Riffwick's points. I mean, mm-hmm. he's clearly a he's clear, clearly a goalkeeper that's a probably one of, if not the best of his generation. But I just wanted yeah. to ask your opinion on what the, sorry, ask your opinion on the situation at Bayern Munich at the moment in the goalkeeping area, especially with the pending transfer of Alexander Nubel coming in. Do you think, do you think it's a case of Manuel Neuer now could be in the position where he's holding both Bayern Munich and Germany back, given their reluctance, or both, uh, both Bayern Munich and Germany's reluctance to actually drop him? And he's actually passed his best now, and probably has been for maybe the last two seasons. Personally, I I, um, I I don't believe he's passed his best just yet. Maybe he's passed his peak, but I still think he has a lot to offer, especially after this season where it, uh, he did fairly well. I think he was one of the top three goalkeepers in the Bundesliga this season. It, it was a really important season for for Manuel Neuer. So um, I I think he's shown that there is still some of that peak Neuer left in him is it is it peak Neuer as in like 2014 potential Ballon d'Or <laughs> winner Manuel Neuer absolutely not um, and I think you bring up an interesting point of if he's holding back Bayern Munich in Germany because you know Germany have had this discussion already especially when Marc-Andre yeah. Ter Stegen was was playing at an elite level going into the 2018 World Cup the whole discussion was you know, should they start Manuel Neuer or should they start Marc-Andre Ter Stegen? And, yeah. you know, with, with respect to Neuer, in my opinion, Neuer is 
was the best goalkeeper of the 2010s. My opinion, he's the second greatest goalkeeper of all time, which you can you can see just how much I, I appreciate Neuer. But when you're when you're coming off of a season where you haven't played since September of last year, and uh, you know you're coming off of two metatarsal fractures. And you've got a guy like Marc-Andre Ter Stegen, who's arguably the best goalkeeper in the world at that point and has been playing at a consistent level for Barcelona. You know, you go with Marc-Andre Ter Stegen at the World Cup and he should be your go-to guy, even if Neuer is the captain, even if Neuer prior to his injury might have been the best goalkeeper in the world. You should still go with Marc-Andre Ter Stegen and even following the World Cup when there were all of those reports suggesting that if Neuer is dropped for Marc-Andre Ter Stegen, then other Bayern Munich players might uh, might be prevented from joining the German national team. Or like there were reports along the lines of that. Um, it's there is a time where you have to accept that maybe you're past it. And unfortunately, I, d- I don't know if Neuer can really accept it. It's a sign that he's a competitor, but also a sign that he might be a little bit selfish. And uh, yeah. Bayern Munich, you know. Bayern Munich are a team that once their players cross into the territory where Neuer is at, because I believe Neuer is uh, 34 years old. Once their players start going into that territory, they're not thinking about like, okay, let's, you know, we we want to give them game time and we want to wait until they retire where we think start thinking about their future. No, once the players enter that age range, they're already thinking about, okay, who should we prepare to succeed them? And uh, I think Bayern Munich, I think Bayern Munich, by signing Alexander Nubel, they're actually doing the right thing. It is the right thing for them to sign a 23-year-old who's expected to be the next Neuer, as some people in the Bundesliga have labeled him as. And I, I, I think that is the right decision by Bayern Munich. And I think if you're Manuel Neuer, yes, you know, you, you just you're coming off of this season where uh, you seem to be showing signs of your best. Not entirely your best, but showing signs of it. Um, but I think you also have to, you, you can fight for your position, but when it's, when it's something along the lines of some of the routes that he's taken to try and force Bayern Munich to, to not think about the future and just, just focus on him basically giving an ultimatum. I mean, like I feel yeah. like Neuer loses in that situation because he did give an ultimatum. Uh, when, yeah. when Nubel was signed by Bayern Munich, there were reports which suggested that he had a clause in his contract which said that he was guaranteed a certain amount of appearances per season. I believe it was 15 or so appearances. But Neuer caught wind of that reportedly. He was not pleased reportedly. And he did not agree with sharing time with another goalkeeper. And he put his contract extension on hold and raised a whole bunch of speculation surrounding his future. And I think there was even there was even a quote that France Football reported where Neuer said, and again, this is a quote according to France Football, while I'm here, I'll play all of the games regardless of the competition, including friendlies, end quote. So it seemed as though Neuer was not pleased with this reported clause. And I, I understand fighting for your position, especially if you feel like you have a lot to give. But there's also, you also have to come to terms with uh, with aging as well. And I, I don't know if Neuer has, has done that. Yeah, well, you just, I mean, that was my next question there because I'm someone who quite follows German football quite a lot. And I was quite intrigued by the contract situation once the, the Nubel transfer was went public because he was quite vocal or reportedly quite vocal within the press as to say that he's not willing to 
not play any games. I think at the time, I think it was quoted that Nuno was going to play all the cup matches. I'm not sure if that counts the Champions League as well or just the the, the German domestic cup. But yeah, he was quite vocal, and that's what sort of prompted me question. Is it's probably more aimed at Bayern Munich more so than Germany. At what point does someone who's so is quite clearly so influential off the pitch become too disruptive or too unwilling to sort of move with the times and think about the future? So yeah, that, that that's what prompted the question. I was quite intrigued from a goalkeeping perspective, someone who follows goalkeepers like yourself to what uh, what what you thought about that, given the the fact that I mean, like you said it. He is one of the best keepers of all time. But yeah, so, yeah, that it was that was that was really good to see that. So thank you. Yeah, no worries. I I, I honestly think like Bayern Munich at the end of the day, they're not worried about just winning trophies this season, but they're also worried about winning trophies the next season and the next season yeah. and the next season and ten seasons down the line and twenty and thirty and it, so they're going to be planning for those. And uh, you know, Manuel Neuer, this was his decade. This was the decade where he uh, showed that he's one of the best goalkeepers of all time, where he came very close to winning the Ballon d'Or, where he basically influenced a generation of, of, of a goalkeeping style. He, he basically, he, it was one of the biggest factors behind the evolution of the sweeper keeping and the ball handling style. So this was yeah. his decade. But he's also 34 years old. He's coming off of two metatarsal fractures. He's actually he actually had like three injuries. If you also include the torn muscles in his left leg that he suffered uh, last season, if I'm correct. But he's had three injuries to the same leg in the past two years. That's not a good sign for someone that's turning 34 years old. That's not a good sign for uh, a guy that plays a position where. Uh, jumping and diving and pushing off with your leg is such an important thing. And um, that's why I believe this season was important. But that's why I also believe that Bayern Munich, it's in their right to be searching for a younger goalkeeper to, to at the very least, learn from Neuer. I mean, you got Neuer down before his contract extension. They had him down until 2021. So at the very least, they could have had Nubel learn from Manuel Neuer. And it, I, I think Bayern Munich were, you know, they were in the right to go shopping for for Alexander Nubel. Yeah, I think as well. I mean, there's certainly a discussion to be had that if you look at Bayern Munich right in between, say, from when Pep Guardiola resigned and took Man- went to Manchester City, right up to to when Hansi Flick took the job. I mean, they've not been quite at the level that they were for, say, the first part of this decade, certainly. And you could argue that one of those reasons was that when Neuer weren't playing well or he was injured, they didn't have a suitable understudy or they didn't mm-hmm. have someone competing with him. I always think that's a key, that's a key thing, I mean, as we've seen with Manchester City, I, I, I believe. Uh, for anyone who's, in, who's, who's looking to win a title, if you get someone, and it, it would be interesting to see what happened if Alison Becker was maybe injured for longer than what he was at the first part of the season. Mm-hmm. Whether well, these teams we, we actually sort of, do have suitable understudies that can come in and do a job for maybe three months. We we know. sort of saw a glimpse of of life uh, without Alison Becker. You know, Adrian had a fantastic part of the first part of the season, but also the game as, against Atletico Madrid. Uh, he yeah. was he was largely lauded for his performance there. He, he, that point about backup 
goalkeepers. Um, it, it's it's one of the reasons why Barcelona were so good back when they had Claudio Bravo and Marc-Andre Ter Stegen as a duo. And then when Bravo left, they had Jasper Sillison as Ter Stegen's backup. Because if yeah. something happened to one of their goalkeepers, boom, they have somebody else that uh, that's suitable to come in and play however many games need be and even even challenge for trophies. I mean, they, they the, one of the reasons why they won the treble in their first uh, season together is because you had Claudio Bravo handling La Liga a league he's familiar with, a league that he played in with Real Sociedad against teams that he's familiar with. And then you have Marc-Andre Ter Stegen, you know, playing in the cup games and, and the Copa del Rey, getting used to uh, how Barcelona line up in games. And ultimately, they won all three trophies. Do they win all three trophies if you have a young Marc-Andre Ter Stegen playing in all three competitions, which is something he, he probably wasn't used to at Borussia Mönchengladbach? Do they win all three trophies if you have Claudio Bravo playing in all three competitions? I don't know. I don't think so, to be honest. And then Jasper Sillison was a was a fantastic backup option. I mean, I, I remember reading tweets from people that would say things along the lines of... I. They they would say stuff like when uh, when Sillison was playing they they would say maybe we should split starting duties be, between Mark Andre Ter Stegen and Jasper Sillison and even though I think that's an absolutely crazy idea it just goes to show how much Barcelona fans trusted Jasper Sillison when he was playing and that that's you know that's that's praise for Jasper Sillison. That's sort of the position you want to be in as a fan as well. And and Bayern Munich really ate it uh, when when Neuer had his injury. Yes, Sven Ulreich, I believe he uh, he won the uh, Bayern Munich Players uh, Player of the Year award in that season that Neuer was out for 2017-18. But to be honest, I don't think he actually did that great of a job. Um, I thought that he wasn't able to handle the pressure of playing for Bayern Munich, even though they ended up winning the Bundesliga, even though uh, he got that consolation award of, uh, of you know, best, uh, best Bayern Munich player of the season. I don't believe he actually did that great of a job. But yeah, it's, it's definitely important to have a good backup option. And uh, for a lot of teams that rely on that superstar elite level goalkeeper, but then don't have a good enough goalkeeper to serve as a backup option when they need it, they they might eat it in some competitions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that, that, those are actually really good points that you spoke, you know, Chris and yourself spoke on not the situation with Manuel Neuer and the whole thing with Bayern Munich. And you talked about Sven Ulrich as well. And I, I think, I guess it was the 2017-18 season where they had Neuer out. And I think that was the same season where Bayern played Real Madrid in the Champions League semi-final, if I'm not wrong. I, I guess... Ulrich made an error that probably was pretty decisive in the tie as well. Uh, like I, I don't quite remember, but I, I do remember him making a mistake against. I guess it was Real Madrid itself in the semi-final. So it was, yeah, if I remember correctly, it was a pass back to him, and I think what because um I can't I can't really put myself in in his position. I don't know what he was thinking at the time, but I think he was thinking I'm going to hold the ball. You know he's going to slide on the ground and and uh, and 
gain possession of the ball. But then I think he remembered, wait a minute, that was a pass back from a teammate. And that's that's why he did this really awkward clearance where he was like on on one knee and he tried to swipe at the ball with with his right foot. I think he thought that it wasn't a pass back, that it was actually a loose ball and he was going to control it. And at the last second, he remembered, oh, wait a minute, it's a pass back. But that's a comment on his focus. If you're not focused in a game of that magnitude and you may end up making a silly mistake like that, how can you really be trusted to, to replace what who at the time might have been the best goalkeeper in the world? And I, I don't think Ulrich was was uh, was capable of that. Yep, exactly. So moving on from this particular discussion, I mean this particular topic to the next one, which is probably about the probably the lack of enough black goalkeepers in Europe's top leagues. I mean, this is something that's probably not being talked about a lot and definitely Black Lives Matters is probably a big, big, you know, big, big movement or something that probably we should all you know, support and with all, all that we can because that is really important in the world right now and what whatever happened with George Floyd is something that should never ever happen again to any person and coming coming on to the actual topic so uh, lack of black goalkeepers i guess if you look at england i, I don't think you have a black goalkeeper in england do you i, I guess steve mandanda was there at crystal palace probably a few years back but i don't vaguely remember another black goalkeeper in in, in the premier league uh, off late and it, it's it's pretty less as well in numbers if you look at the top five European leagues as well. And Mohammed, what what is probably your take on this? And why do you think this this probably shortage of black goalkeepers in Europe? Yeah, so the lack of uh, the lack of black goalkeepers in Europe is something I've thought about a lot. And uh, you know, as you mentioned, because of the recent Black Lives Matter protest, the discussion has really heated up. Uh, but also because of Andre Onana's quotes from earlier this year. So I'm not sure if you guys remember, but in early January, Onana mentioned how following the 2017 Europa League final, an Italian club inquired about his services. Uh, but then, according again to Onana's own words, uh, that club told his agent that a black goalkeeper would be complicated in Italy. Essentially, they reportedly said that they didn't want him because, according to Onana, uh, he was black. Um, so Onana has been very vocal about this even last year. Uh, he said that clubs do not have faith in black goalkeepers. Uh, so he's been very vocal, very blunt about the lack of black goalkeepers. Now, regarding why that's the case, I know some people have argued or at least have tried to argue that it's not down to discrimination, but rather it's down to their not being, uh, according to them, a lot of good black goalkeepers. But I disagree heavily with this because there have been a number of black goalkeepers playing in Africa and other nations who deserved European shots and they never got their chance. Uh, guys like, for example, Etumalang uh, Kuhn, the fantastic South African goalkeeper. He's uh, arguably the top African goalkeeper of the 2010s. If you watch his distribution highlights, I don't know if you guys have ever seen his highlights, but if you haven't, search up uh, Kuhn, K-H-U-N-E, and then distribution highlights, and you'll watch this guy and you'll be like, this guy's distribution is up there with the likes of Ederson and Allison Becker. He's so good at quickly analyzing potential outlets and then delivering them to... Uh, 
to a variety of teammates through a variety of different accurate passes. And yet, bar a small rumor linking him to Hanover in 2014, I don't remember him ever being linked to a European club. Uh, another example is Dennis Onyango. Uh, he's a Ugandan international. He's played for a number of clubs across the African continent. In 2016, the IFFHS actually ranked him as the 10th best goalkeeper of the year, ahead of Petr Cech, ahead of Samir Handanovic, ahead of Marc-Andre Ter Stegen. And yet, aside from some rumors back in 2009 linking him to unnamed European clubs, again, I could find uh, nothing that suggests that any club in Europe was actually interested in it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't buy the argument that uh, black goalkeepers or uh, that good black goalkeepers don't exist or that Africa, which is a, a continent with 56 member associations, hasn't produced more than a handful of goalkeepers who can compete at the European level. I, I just I don't buy that at all. So to go back to the question of why, I think it's down to a few myths that are associated with black players. Um, so there are some racist stereotypes that often de depict bl all black players, all African players as having three qualities, which are pace, strength, and a weak mentality or a fiery temper. Whenever I'm watching a broadcast of a game or watching some kind of discussion surrounding some black player or some African player, at least one of those uh, qualities is always brought up. And it's, it's always it's always they're fast. It's always they're strong. It's always they lose their temper easily. You know, these are stereotypes that that wrongfully uh, blanket all black players and all African players in the same light. Uh, how does that impact goalkeepers? Well, think so if black players are always said to be pacey and fast, that they're able to cover long distances in a very short time. You know, goalkeeping doesn't have much to do with sprinting or pace. Like, sure, sweeper keeping involves, you know, leaving your line quickly. It involves, um, it involves being quick on your feet, agility, etc. But it's not usually what people think of when they think of pace. You know, people think of like Pierre Emerick Aubameyang or Sadio, Man Sadio Mane when they think of pace. So because black players are always said to be pacey and goalkeepers can't really use their pace, people assume that black goalkeepers are useless in this regard. Uh, secondly, strength. Goalkeepers have to be strong. You know, when they're rising into the air to catch a cross, they have to overpower another player, sometimes even multiple other players, in order to make a safe catch and get to the ball. But again, when people think of strength, they don't think of a goalkeeper making a catch. Who do they think of? They think of Didier Drogba or Kalidou Koulibaly outmuscling another player. And that's not to say Drogba or Koulibaly are not strong players. They are. But people take this trait of theirs and think, well, every African player or every black player must be like this. And when they think every bla uh, black player must be like this, they must be strong. They're also thinking of black goalkeepers. And if they don't believe black goalkeepers can use their strength, they're going to unfairly assume that, you know, again, black goalkeepers are useless in this regard. And also just the point of, um, you know, a weak mentality and a fiery temper. I, I honestly don't believe I've ever listened to or read about a black player or an African player, be they a goalkeeper or outfielder, 
who hasn't at least once been described as having a weak mentality or a fiery temper. I remember that tag being given to Didier Drogba early in his Chelsea career. I remember that tag being given to Samuel Eto'o back when he was playing with Mallorca. I remember that being given to Nelson Dida all throughout his entire career. You know, maybe not anymore. Maybe people don't believe those, uh, those stereotypes anymore. But there was a point in time where people described those players with that stereotype. And bringing this back to goalkeepers, what's one thing everybody goes on about regarding goalkeepers? It's strong mentality. You got to have a strong mentality to succeed as a goalkeeper. And if the stereotype is that black goalkeepers have a weak mentality or they lose their temper easily, despite playing a position where you got to stay cool and have a strong mentality to succeed, then, you know, you could see why not a lot of European clubs or European fans are giving black goalkeepers or African goalkeepers the benefit of the doubt. If they believe this stereotype to be true for every single black goalkeeper or every single African goalkeeper. So that that's why that's why I think there's a lack of, of black goalkeepers playing at a high professional level in Europe has nothing to do with there being a, an actual lack of good black goalkeepers, but it has everything to do with these sort of racist stereotypes that people, some people, not all, but some people seem to have of every single black player or every single African player. Yeah, and, and I don't think that this is probably a club issue or a, a particular fan base issue or anything. I think this is a normal people issue where you know, people form a specific stereotype or people form you know, a specific assumption of, you know, these black, black, black players. Doesn't even, uh, doesn't even need to be a goalkeeper, you know, for people to form opinions. Like you said, when they think of African players, they think about muscle, strength, pace, and that's what they think. And, but they, 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 they don't take into you know, consideration that these players might be technically brilliant as well. Someone like Nabi Keita, who's who's probably not very, very bulky or something, who, who's, who relies too much on strength. He's a very, very technical player there. And you have players like this as well. And that is something probably people need to see. And you talked about Dida as well. Uh, Dida, probably, probably he was the, probably the first or the black first goalkeeper probably, or he was probably the biggest uh, guy to probably make a huge influence in Italy you know, because he was probably... Uh, I guess the first black player, first black goalkeeper, I think. Uh, I don't know if I'm wrong here, but probably the first black goalkeeper to, you know, kind of change the scenario there in Italy. And Milan, especially, they've been pretty, pretty professional and to the mark when it has come to racism. And they've, they've kind of mm-hmm. done everything to tackle that as well. So I don't think like it's a specific club issue or anything. It's probably down to, you know, a few, few section of people. So... That that's probably my whole take yeah, on this thing. Yeah, you would pray or hope that it was more of a scouting issue and really naivety, uh, really naive scouting rather than an actual race issue. But the points that you've raised are really, really eye-opening. Really, uh, when you consider the actual issue that is going on within football at the moment, certainly mm-hmm. from a ra- from a, from a racial uh, perspective. And I, I just want to touch on that point by, or a couple of points by, by Rithwick. Firstly, about Dida. Yeah, he was successful with AC Milan and, and um, in Italy. But even to this day, he's, some people, when they, when they look back at Dida 
one of the things they always say about Nelson Dida was, oh, well, he had a weak mentality or he would lose his head easily or he would lose focus easily. Personally, I don't believe those, uh, those to be true. Um, but a lot of people hold those opinions about Nelson Dida. They won't tell you they hold it about him because, you know, he's a goalkeeper of color. But, you know, he wouldn't be the first goalkeeper to have uh, the first black goalkeeper, the first goalkeeper of color to uh, have been judged as having a weak mentality. And also just these general opinions we form about, you know, specific players from specific regions. I mean, I know for the longest time, you know, when a club would be connected to a goalkeeper from Brazil, a, a lot of people would say, ah, well, you know, goalkeepers from Brazil are pretty weak. They're not actually good goalkeepers. They're just players that weren't skilled enough to be outfielders. Um, and Allison and Ederson have sort of proved that wrong in recent years. And uh, even Dida at his time. Uh, as proof that no, Brazil actually produces top-class goalkeepers. But yeah, we, we formed these opinions about uh, about specific players from specific regions. And even me living in Canada, actually. I remember uh, when Bayern Munich uh, officially signed Alfonso Davies, you read some of the comments and everybody would be saying stuff like, what, we're signing a guy from Canada, Bayern Munich signing this kid from Canada, when does Canada ever produce uh, good soccer players, etc.? Now, Alfonso Davies is arguably one of the, if not the best player in his position in, in the entire world. And he's a kid from Canada, right? So people will form these sort of opinions based off of uh, region-specific players come from, which, which is unfortunate. But unfortunately, uh, black goalkeepers and, and uh, African goalkeepers have, uh, have been discriminated against the most, I would say. Yeah. Just touching on Dida there, I would actually say that he lost his head for nine minutes in the 2005 Champions League final. Something that I have not forgiven him for as an Evertonian, letting Liverpool <laughs> back into that game. I, there was there was something there was something special in the in the Istanbul uh, <laughs> in the Istanbul air there. I still look back at a Jersey Dudek uh, save, that double save yeah. he made on uh, on Filippo Inzaghi. I'm going to be honest, I hate calling saves lucky saves because I feel like it takes away from the goalkeeper. But honest to God, I think that is the luckiest save I've, I've ever seen. Um, yeah, well. with, with all due respect to Jersey Dudek, you know, with, he, he redeemed himself quite well after letting in three goals in that first half. But man, that was, that was a, like the gods were with we're with Liverpool and we're with Jersey Dudek that night. The, the moment, the moment that Liverpool scored scored their third goal, you're like, yeah, that's it. They're winning this. There's no way that they're that they're um yeah that they're well, gonna choke we, this. It went only Dudek save. That was very lucky about that night. But we will move on swiftly from that from that topic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just want to say you brought it up. You're the one yeah, that brought yeah, it yeah. up. Yeah, it's still, uh, <laughs> it's still living in my memory very vividly. Mm. Especially because I rang, uh, uh, uncle, I rang my uncle up yeah. at half time when they were three 0 down. Shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 and 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 if Chris like uh, probably might be forgetting the fact that Everton finished fourth that year and Liverpool finished fifth, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Liverpool weren't even the best team in Liverpool that year. Yeah, but they, all, they, all, they always do something to uh, trump us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 that and that has for that has probably you know 
I added more to you know the salt and the pain that the Chris is probably showing right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like Langer said, we'll, we'll we'll move on from 2005 Champions League final. But you, 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 so, <laughs> sorry, Mohammed. You, no you worries. On, you switched on a Fancel Davis there, and that was um, one of the questions I wanted to bring up because I mean I've lived in Canada myself, and I now hopefully now it has a lot more football interest than what it did when I lived there I lived there back in 2011 so I know it's not the most football orientated country but what has been the response to his success especially over the last six months over there I mean is it is it gathering a bit more support now oh uh, 100% it's it's gathering support um, the thing with us Canadians is um, even if it's a sport we have we had no idea existed the day before. Once we see a Canadian athlete doing well, the, the entire country gets behind him. So uh, yeah. obviously seeing Alfonso Davies succeed the way he has been uh, with Bayern Munich has brought a lot more attention. The fact that a lot of these uh, professional leagues, they haven't even come back yet. You know, the, the National Hockey League, the National Basketball Association, they haven't come back yet. So when the Bundesliga returned, it was being marketed here as an opportunity for Canadians to actually get a chance to see Alfonso Davies, see what this guy is all about. And you no longer had the excuse of, well, I want to watch my hockey or my basketball anymore. So actually, yeah. um, the Bundesliga's return really helped bring a lot more attention onto Alfonso Davies. Also, the fact that we're going to co-host the, uh, the World Cup in 2026 just brought more attention onto the Canadian national team, the sort of prospects that we have. Because Alfonso Davies isn't the, isn't the only uh, exciting prospect. There's also uh, Jonathan David. Who's, who's gathering some attention, and I believe he's been linked to a bunch of clubs, Lille, uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, I remember being him being linked to a, to them at one point, if I'm correct. But yeah, so it's it's definitely brought more attention. Toronto FC's success has also helped. Um, I don't I don't know which city you lived in when, when you were uh, here in, in 2011, but uh, I'm based in Toronto. Oh, Vancouver. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I, I've yeah. never been. I've never been to uh, Vancouver, but I, I live in Toronto, and it's an incredibly multicultural city. And uh, I can tell you, a, a lot of people like me who are, you know, their their parents came from another country. Um, yeah, we grew up with soccer, so you'll find that Toronto FC does tend to have a lot of supporters uh, coming to watch their games, and especially when when they reach the final and. 2016 and uh, last year, and then when they won it in 2017, that brought more attention onto uh, onto the team. But yeah, definitely, I, I think the country has reacted positively. There's there's more work to be done, but somehow the Bundesliga coming back and the uh, the coronavirus putting a pause on all of the professional sports leagues has actually been a blessing in disguise for bringing more attention onto Alfonso Davies and the work that Canada soccer and Canadian soccer players are doing. Brilliant, brilliant news. Exactly. And that, that probably was my, uh, the last question that I, want, I wanted to ask you was probably about can Canada co-hosting the World Cup. But since you've already covered that, probably that probably brings us to the end of this episode as well. It's been fun talking to you, Mohammed, today, and probably Chris has enjoyed a lot too. Ap- apart from when we talked about Liverpool and Allison, so <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. I'll hold my hands up. There's not many. Uh, well, there isn't. He is the best in the world at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully it won't yeah. last too long. But <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that probably brings us to the end of this episode. And it's been a fun episode once again. Exactly like. 
the one we had uh, previously and hope we we can do one more episode in the future as well or in some some time next season when you know things get more clear probably so the, there are some good transfers as well and yeah that that is probably it for the, this podcast mm-hmm. and thank you to all our listeners as well who tuned into this episode um, we appreciate that a lot you have probably helped us a lot in you know, getting where we are at the moment it's been 3 years and you make us probably you know better each and every day so thank you so much once again to all our listeners and all, all the people who follow the netflix affairs and that's it for this episode until the next episode bye bye